On this podcast, we frequently chat with founders changing the world. Everything from autonomous checkout to vertical labor marketplaces to the creator economy and the no-code movement. But one of the areas I've been most recently intrigued by is space. And so this week, we talked to one of the sharpest and most interesting entrepreneurs in today's space movement, Tim Ellis, founder and CEO of Relativity Space. Relativity's mission is to make mankind a multi-planetary species. And to make this mission a reality, the company is radically changing the infrastructure and manufacturing process to build rockets, shrinking the launch process from 180 months to just 60 days. How they're doing this is what's especially mind-blowing to me, 3D printing. In this episode, we talked with Tim about the space economy, 3D printing, aerospace supply chains, and how Tim's using a fresh fundraising round of $500 million to change the way we think about space. Welcome, Tim. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, of course, Ramin. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, Tim, really excited to have you on the show today to talk about relativity space and and 3D printing rockets. I mean, it, it sounds... Uh, crazy enough just saying those words. And so I'm really excited to get, you know, your perspective on on the topic itself. Before we dive in too deeply, tell us a little bit more about your background and, and the journey to founding Relativity Space. Yeah, of course. So, um, you know, it really started uh, at Blue Origin. So I was working for Jeff Bezos' private space company. Actually, even before that, in college, I went to USC here in Los Angeles. Uh, we were the first student group in the world to build our own rocket and launch it to space. Um, so that's what got me a, an initial internship at, at Blue Origin. Um, so first started there when the whole propulsion team was only a, a little over 20 people and the whole company was about 150. So it was very, very early on. I think Blue's well over 3,000 people now uh, and, and got to you know, being at the ground floor. So I would go from a blank sheet of paper to first working version of a whole rocket engine product or, or sub-assembly and do all the steps around manufacturing, design, analysis, uh, build, test, and really everything in between. And I was the first user of metal 3D printing at the company and then ended up uh, founding the 3D printing division at Blue Origin and was singularly responsible for bringing metal 3D printing in-house. But then when I did that, a few kind of key thought breakthroughs happened. So, you know, I saw this technology actually worked, uh, for, first of all, for building parts of a rocket engine. But when I really looked across the, the entire factory, you know, we're still only doing 0.01% of a whole product via 3D printing. Um, and, it, and it was not having the quick adoption that I expected it was going to. And that's because, you know, I really started to realize 3D printing wasn't just a manufacturing technology. It was really an entirely new value chain that uh, much like going from on-premise servers to cloud or gas internal combustion uh, engines to electric architectures was really just a totally different way of building a product. And 3D printing actually should be viewed much more as an automation technology. And if you were able to do it and the inevitable future was to, to do it for an entire product uh, from a top-down perspective and really start from scratch and build a whole factory that can 3D print a whole rocket, um, which is what now we're doing at Relativity, uh, that that would actually be very transformational and get you a, a completely different result um, than just having it be one piece of, of the, uh, the the puzzle. And then really the, the other part, more existentially, was you know at the time, so Relativity is now five years old. Uh, at the time, SpaceX was 13 years old. 
when I founded Relativity and they were the only company in the world that had this long-term mission of making humanity multi-planetary and going to Mars. I felt that was extremely important for the future of mankind and, and you know, kind of humankind. And, uh, you know, we could actually be the company that, that builds the, the next, uh, you know, set of, of uh, technologies that we need to actually make this happen. So SpaceX, despite launching cargo to the International Space Station and landing rockets as they were starting to do in 2013, they were the only company that had been founded in more than a decade with that mission. So I felt, man, if that wasn't inspiring enough to have more companies join, maybe it's not a certainty that a bunch more emerge and you know all the animations faded to black even though they were beautiful right when uh, starship or bfr landed and people walked out onto mars and so i really felt that 3d printing was the inevitable technology that would build the future of humanity in space and actually build humanity's industrial base on mars and that you know relativity had to be the company to, to be the first to try to do this so that really links the long-term North Star with near-term disruption um, that we're starting with by 3D printing rockets. When I visit the site, Tim, I see the mission statement is expanding the possibilities for human experience. You know, you, you just alluded to, you know, kind of thinking even beyond the fact of building rockets, et cetera, and the importance of exploring multi-planetary. You know, just tell me a little bit more about what that mission statement means to you and, and how that interlinks with this ultimate vision for relativity that you've been describing. Yeah, of course. So, you know, I, I, I think why go to Mars? I mean, yeah, it is about expanding the possibilities for human experience. Like, I think it's worth, it's worth kind of trying to wrap your head around if me and you were having this conversation right now, and there were a million people living on another planet, that that would fundamentally change what it means to feel as a human being anywhere on Earth. I mean, we'd be, we could be having this podcast long distance, you know, from Earth to Mars, there's long distance relationships, there's new, you know, kind of art and creativity and just new emotions and thoughts and feelings about what it means to be human and, and really a much more enriched and complex experience. And I just feel like, you know, we need a future that we can actually look forward to. And I, I do think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, humans innately have this, the desire to explore and I actually fear a lot of our exploration is being focused inward. I mean, you know, with, with kind of the internet and digital technologies and AR and VR, all of which I think are great. I think they also satisfy some of that core human itch for learning and exploration in a way that I really feel we, we need to keep expanding the possibilities of what people can experience, you know, in, in the physical world too. And I want to, Tim, I want to talk about the sheer size of the opportunity we're talking about, right? We're kind of conceptually talking about it, and it's it's uh, it's difficult in for for many people, you know, me included, certainly, to kind of amass, you know, just in an intuitive way, how large of an opportunity we're talking about. We, yep. you know, we have a lot of high growth founders on the show. It's it, I think it's easier for a lot of our listeners to, you know, tactically grasp the size of the opportunity with one logical jump, right? So let's say you're building a company like Slack. You know, you can size up the market potential for chat or async communication and, and compare it to existing tools. I yep. think conceptually, you know, people get it. Like they understand space as a large opportunity, but but break that down further, especially focused on, you know, what you're tackling specifically as it pertains to space. 
Yeah, of course. So I think at the at the highest level, it's worth pointing out that the entire space economy today makes well over four hundred billion per year in revenue um, globally, and the the way you know I view relativity. So we're focused on launch vehicles to start. Um, so we actually build the world's largest metal three D printers. We build the entire factory that manufactures our own rocket design, and we actually operate the rockets with two launch sites, uh, one out of Cape Canaveral, Florida, one out of Vandenberg Air Force Base here in California. And we do all the engine and rocket and vehicle testing at NASA Stennis Space Center, where we control about a third of all of uh, NASA Stennis uh, you know, for the next 20 years. Um, so very long-term public-private partnerships with the US government. And so the, the initial launch opportunity of that north of $400 billion market slice today is around $6 billion uh, for, for launch opportunities. Now we see that growing you know, massively by several multiples over the next couple of years, really led by the advent of uh, low Earth orbit constellations of satellites. Um, so it's been publicly announced companies like Amazon, uh, OneWeb, uh, SpaceX with their own Starlink satellite constellation, the US government are really starting to, to build uh, systems that will have fiber-like latency. So very low latency, um, global coverage, uh, actually affordable costs. And that really starts to support uh, applications like you know 5G, cell tower backhaul, drone delivery, autonomous systems. Um, so it's really an, an expansion of the overall market well above the 400 billion that it is today. And, uh, you know, really you can view it as the intersection of, uh, you know, 400 billion growing to north of a trillion dollars uh, space economy over the next decade is, is what, um, you know, we, we project and analysts have all agreed is, is likely to happen. And then, then you look at aerospace manufacturing. So, you know, really I view relativity as an end product 3D printing company. So we're starting with rockets. That's a killer opportunity to, to really, you know, sink our teeth into and, and uh, actually be able to vertically integrate around a, a 3D printed rocket as an, end, as an end product. But much like Tesla, it started with the Roadster and then moved on to the Model S and then you know, Model 3 and, and other products while building their own proprietary factory. Um, relativity will also operate much the same, that we're starting with this first rocket product that's 3D printed. But then if you actually look at the 3D printing factory, we have to build an entirely different value chain, supply chain, um, autonomous manufacturing via 3D printing, you know, no fixed tooling, very different CapEx structure and cycles, um, very different, you know, kind of uh, automation and human labor and uh, use of software and data. That that's a also tackling a trillion dollar aerospace manufacturing industry that exists today. So we're we're really at the intersection of two trillion dollar industries, and um, just m mashing them together in a way that no one else has really uh, attempted to do before. Let's let's talk about that a little bit more, Tim. One of the things I really always enjoy enjoying chatting with founders on on the show is you know beyond team product market is really distilling into why now. And, and outside in, I think the most unique angle you're chasing is, you know, of sorts what you've been alluding to, which is really fundamentally redesigning the supply chain for rockets. You're, you're unbundling, you know, the age-old process with modern technology and specifically 3D printing. I want to dive a lot deeper into that. Let's just start with the basic concept of, you know, what 3D printing is for, for some of the folks listening that might not know. 
Yeah, of course. So, I mean, really, you know, I know people are increasingly familiar with 3D printers, whether it's MakerBot or, you know, kind of plastic desktop 3D printers. What we're doing is entirely different than that. Um, I mean, it's all using metal. So we actually have systems, whether they use lasers or uh, different, you know, very high power heat sources, uh, robotic arms that feed in either metal wire or metal powder and then use this heat source to actually melt the metal. Um, so it fully melts and then solidifies very, very quickly in a very small spot. And then wherever the robot arm moves, that solidifies the metal. So you can think of it like a robot arm that's actually drawing uh, layer by layer the, the product and it's like Terminator style. I mean, it kind of emerges out of, out of the 3D printer. So the advantage of that is, uh, you know, traditionally every aerospace factory you walk into today is very impressive looking and has huge, expensive, heavy fixed, what's called fixed tooling. So it's basically CapEx that is specifically designed to do one part in a manufacturing process. Um, it, it ends up, you know, meaning that products in aerospace have hundreds of thousands to millions of individual pieces. So they're very, very complicated, much more complicated than a car as far as total part count. And they have to all be assembled by hand. And the whole process is very slow. It takes on order of 18 to 24 months um, to build things like a rocket in the traditional manufacturing process. And so 3D printing really overhauls that because it, it takes what is traditionally a, a slow manual process and it takes that physical complexity and puts it more into digital. So the 3D printers we use actually reduce part count. So our, our rockets have less than a thousand total parts and um, they look very, very complicated when 3D printed, but that's really actually stitching all of those different individual parts together into single printed pieces. And so that reduction in part count means we can actually build a rocket from raw material coming in the door of our factory to a finished rocket coming out in only 60 days. And then 60 days later, we can do a better version and 60 days later, a better version than that. So the, the kind of rate of compounding progress and the rate of innovation and iteration is so much faster um, with, with 3D printing. And that you know directly relates in a better customer product and uh, customer experience using our products over time. Talk about how you think about that compounding advantage, because I think that's that's just especially astounding, right? So building a rocket in 60 days, you know, being so software driven, you can iterate versus the traditional, you know, 18 month complex manual process. Mm -hmm. um, there's a significant scale of compounding advantage that happens over a 10 year horizon. And, and you were mentioning earlier, you know, you worked at Blue with Bezos and, and I'd argue Bezos is, you know, the world's best capital allocator and someone that deeply, deeply invests in compounding return to yep. show up at you know breakneck impact, but on very long-term horizons, right? Not yep. on not on short-term horizons. So when you think of you know building a rocket in 60 days, being software driven, obviously continuing to iterate and improve that process, and you really think of that advantage over you know a Bezos-like or an Amazon-like, blue-like, you know, uh, duration, how do you think about that in terms of the type of impact that ultimately that can have, you know, on the next set of you know rockets, products, et cetera, you guys build? Yeah, so no, that's a great question. I think it's interesting because, yeah, you're right. Not It is building over time, but even the near-term impact is quite significant. But yeah, as it's going to play out over time. So 
you know, what's interesting is back to the aerospace factory, the, the traditional one, when you walk in the door, most of those tools and processes have been heavily refined and optimized over the last 60 or so years. Like really, if you look back at the early days of NASA and Apollo, the way we build rockets today, like the actual tool set of rockets, you know, t taking out reusability and kind of the Silicon Valley agile approach to culture and venture capital. Like I think those three things are the biggest innovations over the last two decades with privatization 1.0 of space. But the actual tool set, the, the manufacturing, um, you know, how we actually design, qualify, test, build, it still uses a lot of the exact same technology that we've had for the last 60 years. So 3D printing is a different tech stack essentially. And the, the compounding rate of progress is interesting because, and this is one of the reasons why I start with 3D printing rockets. So with 3D printing, really the, the build time is directly related to how much something weighs. So if we printed a rocket that weighed 4,000 pounds and a car that weighed 4,000 pounds, it'd actually take the same amount of time and thus cost to the same, but you can clearly sell the rocket for much more. So there's kind of the stack ranking of what are the highest dollar per pound products in the world that you can actually 3D print and rockets are on, on the top of the list. And then aerospace is really the, the number two. Um, so, so that's also why rockets. And then what's interesting is post our, you know, our first launch. So we're actually building the first flight vehicle in the factory right now on track for launching from Cape Canaveral at the end of next year. And uh, just you know, seeking to, to improve our bill of material cost over time. Like, how do you do that with a 3D, 3D printed product? Well, you actually try to make it lighter. You try to optimize it and make the material stronger and the rocket lighter, because that actually lets you produce it much faster and, and thus more cheaply. And that simultaneously improves the payload performance for customers. Um, so, so it's actually a, a virtuous cycle of just desiring to improve the customer experience also improves your cost structure or just desiring to improve the cost structure also improves your customer experience normally those are actually uh you know how it works is you sculpt a block of metal away from a big solid block with a with like a cnc machining tool and the more material you take away and the more finely optimized and crafted and, and kind of weight optimized you make that piece the, the longer it takes to machine and thus it actually costs more. Um, or if you want to make it stronger and lighter weight out of stronger materials, those are usually more uh, costly and, and slow to, to machine. So you actually have to find some optimum point. In our case, the optimum point is just race to the bottom as far as cost goes. How much of the surface area of the rocket today is printable? I mean, I'm, I imagine electrical is fuel, et cetera, will never be printable, or at least not in you yeah. know, the near term, unless you tell me differently, Tim. Yeah. But how, yeah, yeah. The, how much of the surface area is printable and how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's right. So I think, uh, yeah, we're worth pointing out, uh, well, so 95% of our rocket, our relativity's rocket is 3D printed. Um, so that compares to, you know, like I mentioned, about 0.01% or so of the next closest um, that, that we're aware of. So it is uh, several orders of magnitude more 3D printing content. Um, the other piece of it is, and why that's so powerful, is, uh, you know, give or take a traditional rocket cost structure, about 90% of the cost comes down to some form of, of human labor or, or direct you know, human labor. So more or less... 
the raw materials are single digit percentage and the, the propellants are like fractional percentage uh, points actually. So the propellants and the raw materials are cheap. It's all the effort to uh, you know, form those materials into the rocket, uh, actually test all those parts. So actually reducing part count um, has knock-on effects around how much you have to test all these individual pieces, how long it takes to assemble it all, all the different interfaces that could have errors or, or issues, you know, as far as joints and kind of other leak points and weaknesses. And so there, there's actually a, this virtuous cycle of just fewer part count uh, means you, you actually save a whole bunch in, in costs as well. When you thought about building these rockets, um, Tim, you know, you were at Bezos, you were working, you know, for Blue, right? You mentioned earlier, you convinced the folks over there to get a large 3D printer. Why, why not stay at Blue versus starting your own company? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the, the first thing that's worth pointing out is when I started the 3D printing division at Blue, it was just off-the-shelf metal 3D printers. So about the biggest thing you could print I mean, a little bit bigger than a basketball, essentially, with the with the largest at the time, and even today, really, off-the-shelf metal 3D printers. So Relativity's 3D printer that we custom-developed ourselves, so we've got quite a large percentage of our company just developing our own 3D printer technology over the last five years. Um, the biggest thing that we can make is a Vorder you know, 12-foot diameter by nearly 30 feet tall, um, so it is significantly larger. Uh, and it's also very, very fast. So really, you know, creating our own printing tech was important. But I think, yeah, as far as why start my own company and, and you know, bring a team together and raise capital, you know, I think it was really around two or three realizations. I think the first is this is a completely different value chain. And it's like essentially the barriers to entry are throw away your existing factory throw away all of your existing development and design processes and throw away all of your existing designs, period, because all of that is actually very different for an entirely 3D printed product. So starting from scratch was going to be needed anyway. Um, you know, I, I believe in that top-down approach to really come up with something compelling and, and unique. Um, you know, I think it's very similar to why did Tesla have to exist instead of Ford or other car companies that were doing electric cars for a number of years uh, ahead of, of Tesla, but building the entire from scratch vertically integrated stack uh, just was, was how you actually get to scale. Um, I, I think the other piece on a more personal note was, yeah, I was super inspired that, that we needed to, to have a second company building towards Mars. Uh, and, and that we really actually need to inspire dozens to hundreds more. And we could be the one that put that, that is number two and then go inspire a bunch of others that, that come after. And so I felt that was important. And, and then the last was just really, I was super excited to become a founder and, you know, create our own unique culture here at Relativity. I, I you know, kind of tell, tell the team a lot that, you know, what, what we're striving towards is to be very values and, and mission driven. And I think we can win without losing our soul in the process. 
And there, there's really a way to have an extremely high performing team with very high talent density um, that's achieving amazing kind of iconic uh, things for, for humanity and really getting people excited about the future and building a great large business while simultaneously focusing on values and making sure that we're actually treating people with humanity and, and uh, yeah, really just kind of being a genuinely good place to, to be. And I just felt there was some opportunities at, at other companies, but nothing that was really exactly how I would build from a culture perspective. I like, I like that framing a lot, Tim. I, I wanna switch gears a little bit and talk about you know, the broader space market, and I'm gonna call it that, but you know, one of the layers I, I think people actually get really wrong is thinking about it exactly as that, as the space market, right? Yes. You, you yeah. previously talked about um, you know, looking at space as a venue and all the companies in the ecosystem as participants, so not space yeah. companies, right? But infrastructure yeah. companies, data companies, et cetera. Talk a little bit more about that concept. I, I think the nuance in there is actually really interesting the way you frame it. Yeah, yeah, of, of course. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I must have to laugh because it, it is getting better now and <laughs> 20, 20, five years later, but I will say, uh, you know, I think deep tech, I'll, I'll even, I'll do my own faux pas. Yeah, deep tech is kind of having a resurgence. I mean, there's a lot more very difficult edge of physics, you know, complex type businesses that are getting to scale and, and garnering funding and, and showing success, which I think is great. Um, but yeah, you're very right. Whether it's deep tech, quote unquote, which we all get lumped into, like we'll be in the same group as, you know, a company called Sail Drone that, that makes autonomous sail ships for the ocean that gets lumped in with even a satellite company. But I think at the end of the day, that, that's definitely the wrong way to look at it. I mean, the common thing there is it may be longer times to market, more capital um, before you have you know, significant revenue coming in. There, there are some facets that are similar, but you should really actually be able to distill the business model down into finance. I mean, that that's the common language across all businesses. It's really discounted cash flow, cash in, cash out. What are the competitive moats? What's the customer acquisition process? Um, you know, is it like, like what metrics can you put to things like logos and pipeline segmentation and revenue concentration and cohort analyses? Like you can take all of those exact same tools and find a corollary to our business at Relativity. You can do it to other like satellite businesses and you could do it to other quote unquote deep tech businesses and, you know, space just, it, it's almost like saying, you know, Pinterest and Spotify and Airbnb are the same business because they all use the internet because they're internet companies. I mean, that's kind of true. There, there's some commonalities across the fact that they all are more internet, you know, kind of focused businesses, but it's really, you know, I, I think that will go away with time once space becomes more commonplace in people's day-to-day -day lives as a, as a more aware thing. And then, um, yeah, and then from there, it's really more what kind of business model are you, are you building? In a traditional software company, Tim, you know, speed is critical, right? And many believe in the importance of first to market. You've talked about why you think it's important for relativity to be last to market. Uh, explain that a little bit more, because I, I think that also has a pretty interesting connotation, especially when you think about it, you know, in the context of the industry in which you're building. 
Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, let last to market. One of the one of the best examples there is Google. So you know, Google was not necessarily the first search engine. There was Ask Jeeves. There was all, all sorts of other ones. I remember growing up and and using, and they were popular. Um, but Google is the last, uh, quote unquote. I guess now there's um, like DuckDuckGo or like other other sort of ones coming out. But yeah, for the most part, they built a pretty dominant business. So, so yeah, I think last to market. Um, there's just some advantages in coming second, frankly, you know, and we're we're clearly, you know, I wouldn't even say second. We're just decades behind what is privatization 1.0, and we've been able to recruit a team that I'm very fortunate is with us that helped build, you know, most of those space 1.0 companies in private space, and you know, the advantage of that is you just see. Not not only you know what the innovation was the first time around, but what problems still remain, and you, you know there's still a kind of organizational inertia. But then you're able to to very powerfully start from a blank piece of paper, and, and then figure out okay after we did this the first time, what's the next set of problems that need to be solved, and how do we attack that in a way that actually gets there faster. Um, I also firmly believe that 3D printing as an automation technology and really building this into product approach to 3D printing is going to be one of the most disruptive approaches in our lifetime for transforming the aerospace industry. I'm really convinced you know, many other industries have gone towards heavy automation and iteration, but aerospace actually really has not. Um, if you actually, it's really interesting and fascinating. DARPA collects data around uh, the the kind of innovation rates and and the really specifically the time to design, build, test, and release new products across industries. And if you look at the data across automotive, silicon fab, and aerospace, which are three of the core ones they track, um, over the last fifty years. Uh, automotive is about a, a quarter of the time to design, build, and test a new product um, from 60 months uh, down down to 15. And then silicon fab is about flat, so 20 months, 20 months, but of course, many, many uh, orders of magnitude, greater complexity of part count and lines of code. And then aerospace is actually about three times slower today, going from 60 months up to 180. Uh, to, to build a brand new product. And so it is the only industry that actually bucks the trend. And I firmly believe that's because aerospace has not adopted automation and they haven't adopted it because the, the total part count complexity and building things by hand uh, and the supply chains and the fixed tooling is incredibly difficult to do anything close to what the automotive industry has done with robotic kind of mass market, mass manufacturing automation. And so 3D printing is the holy grail of, of autom or, uh, automation in aerospace. And I uh, you know, really believe relativity is the, the furthest ahead and the one taking the, the first crack at solving this problem. And how do you gauge that speed from the perspective, not of first to market, last to market, but of, of progress, right? So in a, in a traditional you know, software product, right, you have much quicker iteration loops, feedback cycles, et cetera, with customers. You guys are, are getting ready you know, to launch your rocket next year and yep. you founded the business in 2015, right? So it's been yep. six years and you guys are progressing you know, significantly so, but it's a different type of business. It's a different type of business model, right? Than one in which you are shipping something, you know, 
three weeks later, you're getting customer feedback and you're iterating so on and so forth. Um, so how do you think about, you know, operating this type of business, right? Obviously keeping the team motivated, right? Communicating yeah. non uh, clear or non obvious progression points, right? Whether it's to investors, partners, so on and so forth. Talk a little yeah. bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, a few interesting things are coming up with that. So yeah, I guess the, the first thing is certainly it doesn't feel slow. Um, you certainly feel like you are climbing an exponential curve as we have for the last five years. Um, so there is tons of development. I mean, our team's up to 240 people. Uh, we, we've pre-sold, uh, you know, we believe more rocket launches than any other rocket company in history um, before launching. So we have tons of customer engagement and feedback even before launching. Um, there's a ton of demand. We've had to win, you know, government contracts, uh, government infrastructure partnerships. Like we've done more public-private partnerships for U.S. government infrastructure than any other company over the last three years in the United States. So there, there's still tons of pretty concrete milestones that we can point to uh, over the last five years. But I think the other thing that came up to, to your question, because we we started in Y Combinator, so really the founding story was in 2015. I left Blue Origin the very first week that I started Relativity and actually the very first email, believe it or not, I sent from my Relativity Space email address was a cold email to Mark Cuban um, asking him to give us $100,000. And he ended up giving us $500,000, which was our entire seed round. We got into Y Combinator and started incorporating the same week. So our, our first week was a good week uh, as, a, as a business. and. You know, doing doing Y Combinator, it was interesting because their their kind of tagline of make something people want, we had to translate into okay, how how do we how do we even start to make a dent in 3D printing a rocket in three months before demo day? And so we, you know, really were thinking, well, okay, how do we demonstrate that people want this to exist? Like we kind of took a different uh, you know t turn on it, and of course we spent a bunch of time getting early LOIs and, and customer traction in the three months. We also built prototypes of our 3D printer and at the time printed the world's largest ever aluminum 3D printed piece with our own printing tech. Um, there's more and more story there uh, I could tell another time. But yeah, there, there was like really kind of the selling of this is something that's going to define our future. and. I, I do think there was early on at least an element of storytelling to really get people to understand what the advantages were going to be. And should this exist, why do I want this to exist? Like, why do I actually need a 3D printed rocket, for example? And, and yeah, really just defining how much faster the progress is going to be, what this feature looks like, because it is a pretty big departure from uh, what, what I think people can wrap their head around in, in the traditional uh, rocket development manufacturing space. On the backs of this money, you know, a few years ago, you had three employees. Now you've got, you know, 200 plus, as you, was, as you were just mentioning. What's this growth been like as an individual and how have you scaled yourself as the company has changed? Yeah, of course. So, um, you know, we, we've been fortunate. Yeah, we've raised, you know, $185 million uh, across you know, several funding rounds, the, like the latest was 140 million Series C about a year ago. And, you know, with, with that kind of capital and, and, you know, growth investors, certainly there's a whole bunch of personal scaling you have to do as well. You know, I think I've really 
loved it. Um, it's been super exciting, like just from the early days having to learn, you know, things I really knew nothing about. So finance, legal, HR, like recruiting, building a team, attracting absolutely top talent to something that was still pretty nascent. Um, you know, it's all very, very different than what I had experienced before as, as an engineer at Blue Origin. Uh, or, or even then college right before that. I mean, I was 25 when I started Relativity, so it was still pretty early in, in my career. And, um, you know, I think the some of the lessons I've learned along the way, I mean, there, there are many, but, you know, the, and, and I think uh, I've said this before, there's always a little bit of revisionist history in this too. Like I, I've noticed, you know, even now when I recount the story, you, you can kind of glamorize some of the the pieces of it, but, Man, there's there's some tough learning in there too. I I think stuff around um, yeah, stuff just around learning how to grow as a leader at the pace that needs to actually oftentimes outpace your company. And sometimes you're fighting that. Sometimes the company is actually growing, maybe not faster than you, but it's pushing you to learn and be better and be very open minded. So I've I've kind of found growth mindset is one of the most important qualities as well as resilience because you're just especially in a company like relativity when you're telling you know investors you're 3d printing rockets and you have three people yeah you're going to get a lot of no's at the very beginning so you kind of churn through that and uh, just iterate and listen and and really kind of take a bunch of different data points of advice and you know along the way we've been very very fortunate to have um, some great, you know, angel investors as well involved. So uh, other founders, people like John Collison from Stripe, um, you know, there's the YC network, which is very valuable at the beginning. And I think just, yeah, pinging a lot of different people for data points. I mean, you, you always have to make your own decisions at the end of the day, and it's it's really your company. But I've just found you kind of get three or four external data points from credible people. And if they all disagree, then you know, okay, this truly is, I just need to make my own decision. But more often than not, you actually find there are differences between people's takes, but there's kind of general patterns you can pick up. And those patterns tend to be truisms across different people, different industries, different stages. So I just spent a lot of time kind of reading people and talking to people around what are patterns. And that I think helped me build a mental model around scaling. And then, you know, I'd say over the last couple of years, a little bit more experientially just within the company as I gained my footing, but as a, you know, beginning young founder, I would say that was the way that I learned the fastest to start. I really like that. One of the things I, I talk to people a lot about is, you know, this concept of thinking of yourself as a, as a line in the same way of thinking of your company as a line. And if your slope is, you know, a little bit, if, if your slope is way ahead of your company slope, you're going to get bored. You should probably move on. If yep. your slope is way, you know, below your company slope, you're going to get layered because the demands of the business are just more than your capabilities. And the perfect, I think, place to be in, you know, depending on some nuance here and there is, is, is either to be a little bit ahead or a little bit behind, right, of, of that slope. Um, yep. That's, that's kind of the opportunity for maximum growth, as well as, you know, ideally, if you're using, you know, a pretty fast growth slope for the company, and you're using that at least as a baseline, right, then you're going to be that's, that's kind of the pathway to learn, you know, a ton and, and be in different types of roles in which, you know, you're going to have to put yourself in a position where, where candidly, you're not comfortable, which is often where the greatest learning comes from. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there, there's both that from a personal perspective. Certainly, I've, you know, gone through a lot of that, whether with early employees or just other people on the team. I mean, growth is, you know, we've been very fortunate during COVID. It's been crazy fast. I mean, it's only just continued to accelerate on a pretty consistent basis uh, for, the, for the last, you know, five years, but especially the last uh, three years. And so, yeah, I mean, you kind of have those situations where at times with early people that were in leadership positions, you've got to just keep hiring and, and leveling up the team. And and really the advice I would give there, you know, if that does happen to you, because I've seen this quite a few times where it happens to someone and then they just focus on the fact that they just got layered. And that is the fatal move, actually. Like getting layered itself isn't of itself bad because, you know, more often than not, you're getting layered because this individual inspires, you know, me, the CEO more, it will, it should inspire you if it's the right person and you're working for them. And so, you know, there's a lot to learn there, but I've, I've noticed people will sometimes just focus on the fact they got layered and that distraction actually prevents them from continuing to learn at the rate that they were learning before. And then that's the, that's the thing that results in someone leaving the company. So, you know, I think really just, understanding that the people not only that are your boss or manager but others that we continue to bring on the team with scale actually have something for you to learn from uh you know i think it's it's worth even me saying personally and i, and I mentioned this earlier you know the last couple of years we've brought on some of the absolute world's most expert rocket developers that built private space 1.0 over the last 15 or so years and just as much as I'm sure they've learned from me and, and we've you know been building relativity as an exec team together, I've certainly learned a lot from them because, you know, I, I founded the company um, and have the vision and are, and are guiding us forward. They, you know, really rose through the ranks through like thousands and thousands of thousands of people through the last decades to rise to the very, very top roles in private space companies. So they kind of had to get there through a competitive, uh, you know, Dar Darwinian selection, so to speak, um, which is extremely hard one. And I think like those kind of people I, I respect a ton and there, there's a lot to learn from there. Yeah, Shane Parrish had a, had a really interesting thread and article on Farnham Street where he, he basically dissected the difference between being an amateur and being a professional. Um, and, and not in a, you know, not in a denigrating type way, but just to call out, you know, where are there opportunities basically where you're more of an amateur or kind of this is your first go around versus where you're a professional. And, and one of the, one of the, one of the framings I love, you know, the most is kind of this concept actually of, you know, amateurs focus on being right and, and professionals focus on getting the best outcome or amateurs, you know, focus on the next quarter, professionals focus on the next decade. Right. There's there's a lot of kind of nuance in the way he frames out, you know, an amateur and a professional in in mindset. And I think a lot of us and, and part of everybody's growth is you are kind of amateurish in some elements or aspects of, you know, the way you think or the way you emotionally react or whatever it might be. And you you aspire to be more and more of a professional as you can. I, I completely agree. I think the I think oftentimes what happens if you use that kind of amateur versus professional framework, uh, getting layered goes um, it, it kind of goes to the core of your being, right? It goes to a lot of people's kind of self-confidence yeah. versus actually looking at the opportunity. And I like the way you framed it, Tim, but looking at the opportunity to basically say, you know, well, clearly we're growing, you know, faster than my capability set. So what is it now that I have this, you know, leader in front of me 
that I can learn from them, you know, to continue to kind of map back to that company slope. And then, you know, most importantly, as I go on or whatever it is I do next, right, I'm able to use this as that kind of, you know, leverage point and launching point, right, to keep moving forward. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, it's very Dunning-Kruger syndrome, for, for sure. Maybe not the layered part, but the first part you talked about. And yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of, you know, personal rate of growth. There's it's sort of a first principles approach to it. I mean, you, you learn, you read, you get data points, you pattern match across others that may be more experienced or just have diverse perspective. That's certainly what, what I've done a lot of. Then there's just experiential, which takes a little bit more time because you have to actually go through it. Like, I, I can't tell you the number of things and advice. And, and I even tell other founders that I advise this now, I was given so much advice that even five, four, three years ago, it, it like made intuitive sense. And I understood I should probably take this advice and I should understand that someone is, is saying it, you know, things like sales cures all, and you should really focus on sales. And you don't really truly understand what that means until you see the end result of you know our 140 million dollar fundraise for example and and like going through that process with investors at later stages and you get to that or you know things around talent density and kind of turning the team at different uh, levels of of a company you know growth and phases and what that actually experientially plays out with the early team members and kind of team more broadly like all of that stuff now it's it's fun to in, in hindsight, you know, sort of experience firsthand and be like, yeah, all those people are totally right. And I don't believe them at all, but yeah, it's exactly true. And now I know what it feels like instead of just intellectually understanding that it may happen. Tim, we've, we've talked about a lot of different topics today. And as we round out the conversation, I want to get your perspective on the one big thing you believe about space and rockets that others likely wouldn't agree with you on. Yeah, that's an interesting question that others wouldn't agree with me on. I, I, I think the big one there really is that, yeah, I mean, I think the big one there is that there does need to be a unified North Star, in my opinion, across the industry. Um, you know, I'm all for kind of people that want to do different things in space, whether it's go to the moon, whether it's become, you know, Earth orbit manufacturing, whether it's asteroid mining. I think there's a lot of interesting, visionary, futuristic things that, you know, I would agree probably do need to happen in humanity's future at some point in time. I just feel like we're in a stage in the industry where vector alignment towards one common goal and then splitting up responsibilities to achieve that goal would be more effective. Um, you know, I, I, I really do believe that going to Mars will fundamentally change the future of humanity. And it's, it's you know, one of the biggest events um, in, in what makes us human and, and kind of the, ne the next phase of human evolution. And, and so, yeah, I, I definitely believe that space and rockets and, and more companies that can develop in this area do align their, their long-term missions towards that. And then also to be very clear, I think a lot of companies have visionary you know kind of statements or mission statements i think you also need to work backwards and make sure that what you're doing today actually adds up to a, a killer business opportunity to actually get there um there will be nothing that enables the the kind of mass 
you know, colonization and, and settlement of space more than creating companies that can reach several hundred billion in market cap and are attacking massive uh, total addressable markets on earth today. So I think it's really that duality of figuring out tech approaches that, that can work uh, in large scale today, and then also um, having that ambition to swing for the fences for the long run. I, re- I really like that framing as we rounded out the conversation. Tim, this was it was awesome to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for making the time. You're, you're building truly one of the most interesting companies I think that's out there. And, and I really hope you know more folks learn about Relativity, go to the website, check it out because it, it really is quite transformational, you know what you guys are building. So thanks again for coming on. Really excited to you know continue to watch you know the company progress and, and see some rockets go to Mars. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Ramin, for having me. And yeah, we, we are hiring. So if you're interested in joining, um, yeah, definitely interested in, in having people check us out. So thanks a bunch.